Welcome to OR Insights, a podcast from Baxter Healthcare that explores the big questions in surgery today. I'm your host, Michelle Menendez, and in each episode, we will go into the operating room with the leading surgeon for a conversation about their practice and expertise in making critical decisions in real time. Today, we're asking the question, how do you assess and treat intraoperative bleeding? And to answer that question, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Stein, who is an advanced robotic surgeon with Florida Cancer Specialist and Research Institute, who performs the highest volume of gynecologic robotic surgeries in the Tampa Bay area. Dr. Stein is board certified by the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She attended University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital, where she served as administrative chief resident. Dr. Stein completed a gynecologic oncology fellowship program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she is one of the few physicians in the country trained to perform a robotic radical tracheolectomy as a fertility sparing surgery for cervical cancer. Welcome Dr. Stein, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I really am excited about this talk. I think we're going to go through a lot of really fantastic information and give some really good pointers on what we can do to decrease our intraoperative blood losses and kind of hit a lot of really key strategies. So before I begin, I just wanted to point out that I do receive an honoraria from Baxter for this talk that I don't have any conflicts of interest relevant to the content of this podcast specifically. And I solely and independently prepared the content of this, but I look forward to talking with you today. Thanks so much. Well, let's kick it off. Why is it important to have this conversation regarding intraoperative hemostasis? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really important question, obviously kicking off the podcast. As far as important, you know, things in surgery that all surgeons need to be extremely aware of, intraoperative hemostasis is so key. So when you look at surgical data and what's very important, intraoperative hemostasis is is way on the high list there. One of the main reasons is really your your hemostasis during surgery controls so many aspects of that patient's care. Intraoperatively, uh, the, the least blood that is lost, the cleaner the dissection, you really not only see the differences as far as that patient and how well they do during their surgical procedure, but then you also see how that reflects beautifully postoperatively. As, as meticulous, as hemostasis is very meticulous, you see much less pain, lower pain scores in patients postoperatively. Certainly you also see lower rates of complications, specifically transfusion-related complications. And that, of course, downstream, when you look at the effects of that, can decrease cost. And overall, when it comes to surgery and things that are important for surgeons, hemostasis is very, very high on the top of that list. Can you describe the impact on recovery when blood transfusions do occur? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as a GYN oncologist, I do actually a really um, high percentage of robotic or minimally invasive surgery. And so with that, you actually see a lot less blood loss in general, right? And so less complication risk. And you watch the difference. Those patients tend to go home the same day or next morning. They, they feel great. They have very little pain postoperatively and overall just recover really quickly. When you compare that just last week, doing a, a big laparotomy incision on a patient that has cancer, they're usually already anemic preoperatively and doing a big surgery like that, they're going to inevitably lose some amount of blood. And you watch postoperatively if they drop their hemoglobin level and they need to be transfused that you already know that you're adding at least an additional day or so to their to their hospitalization time, which for patients, I mean, even mentally, that's a big deal, right? Because they, they want to be at home with their families, you know? So from the patient perspective, just that extra half day to a day of being in the hospital is a, is a big problem. And then of course, you see the the cost associated with keeping that patient in the hospital that extra day. And certainly long-term, which isn't something that you can really appreciate at that time, but formation of adhesions, given the lack of hemostasis and the need for blood transfusion is a real problem in the future for them as well. So that's a great point. And with what we just experienced this last year with the pandemic, we're now experiencing a national blood shortage. Is this something that you're seeing in the hospitals that you practice in? Are there any additional measures being taken as a result of this this, uh, critical shortage that we're experiencing? Yeah, I mean, certainly we know that with the COVID-19 crisis, one of the major things is that there's been a pretty significant reduction in the blood donation rates. So as you see the rates of blood donation go down, then critical shortages start to happen in the hospital. And so we've like, again, I don't feel like I transfuse a lot of patients in general, just because of the nature of what I do. And because I do so much minimally invasively, I usually don't have as much of a need for that. But talking to my other colleagues, for instance, in orthopedic and cardiovascular, they've really seen quite, quite a struggle with the amount of blood being at very limited capacity and something that we can do as surgeons, it is to try to limit our use of blood products as much as possible. And of course, you know, as educators, try to educate people to go out and, and uh, donate so we don't have this issue. And so I want to take a step, step back to maybe some years ago when you first were introduced to the coagulation cascade and how you look at that today and you consider your patients who are anticoagulated or patients with additional comorbidities, even mm-hmm. beyond you know, the cancer patient. Tell us about that correlation. Yeah, well, I would say in general, as far as looking at my specific patient population, one of the biggest challenges is that, like you were, are alluding to, most of our patients have a significant amount of comorbidities. And it really is becoming, not in just in oncology, but in all of our specialties, becoming more and more 
of an issue. Patients are becoming more morbidly obese. With that, we are seeing more diabetes, more hypertension. Patients are at higher risk for blood clots and cardiac conditions, which really means that they're going to be on anticoagulation more often. There was a statistic shared with me about patient population around me where upwards of 30% of the patients in that county were actually anticoagulated, which is really significant. So times are changing and unfortunately they're not really changing in the right direction. And I'm finding more and more, it's just kind of the usual, right? Patient comes in, they're not healthy. They have a lot going on. And so we have to mold ourselves to that and make adjustments as surgeons. And so one of those adjustments is understanding that those patients are going to be at higher risk for complications, especially the anticoagulated ones are going to be at fairly high risk for not only intraoperative bleeding, but postoperative bleeding complications. That's something we have to manage a little bit more effectively. So this, this probably has your, your approach in how you're caring for these patients has probably evolved over time. Talk about those preoperative considerations you're thinking about and with respect to those patient profiles and, and your hemostasis strategy. Yeah, so for preoperative risk stratification, the things that I would say most of us would pay the most attention to are going to be significant pulmonary and cardiovascular disease and those patients who are requiring major medication and specifically anticoagulation. So those things are going to be more important to the surgeon because we have to essentially navigate how they are going to be anticoagulated before and after surgery. So those are always very common conversations that are starting to arise now. And it's very important that we, you know, I usually talk to the patient about this and explain that, yes, you are going to be at higher risk for both intraoperative, postoperative complications as a result of your anticoagulation, for instance. Or we talk about how, how important is it for them to reinitiate their anticoagulation at what point in time. Those conversations are all had in the office prior to surgery. And I do actually speak to hemostatic agents and other options that I might be utilizing to help prevent those complications. And I'm usually talking with them about that in the office so they can kind of understand that there are certain tools that we can utilize to help prevent these complications from happening. Has that algorithm for you evolved over time compared to when you first started practice to today and and understanding that your surgical techniques have have likely evolved over time? How has that algorithm evolved with it? Yeah, I would say that in general, that algorithm has stayed fairly stable. I mean, the the conditions being treated haven't changed. What, what I feel has really changed is the rate at which we're seeing them. So I feel like there was, even when, when I was back in residency, you know, fellowship, I feel like there was a much smaller subset of patient where you would have to be very concerned about these things. And, 
And like I said, now it seems to be more so the norm than anything else. So I feel like we have to be way more aware so we can prepare uh, not only ourselves, but our patients. That's an interesting point. So when you're thinking about your intraoperative approaches, how are you utilizing the different hemostatic agents? How do you determine what you're going to use in which situations? It's a great question. Actually, it's probably when I when I speak to other GYN surgeons and just surgeons in general, it's it's probably the most common question that I get because I do utilize a fairly wide range of hemostatic agents in my surgeries. And my surgeries range pretty widely, right? So I could do anything from a prophylactic BSO where I'm just removing the tubes and ovaries in a patient with BRCA minimally invasively. That patient's probably going to lose almost no blood. And unless they're anticoagulated, probably isn't going to need much in the way of uh, any sort of medical therapy to prevent bleeding. But everything from that to uh, larger cancer surgeries where transfusion rates are as high as like a third of the patients that you're going to be operating on. So with that understanding, I think that, you know, as surgeons, we have to utilize everything in our toolbox. So there's not just one thing that you're going to be using all the time. That's your favorite thing, right? So we have to be aware that there are different agents for different scenarios. So usually when I'm talking to different surgeons about, well, what do you use for when? We're usually talking about the severity of the bleeding. So if you have a scenario where you have what I call an ooze, so something that you you may not love looking at, right? But that amount of bleeding is pretty minor, so to speak not minor enough where you just feel like you don't want to do anything about it, but minor enough to where it, it might need some form of intervention. We talk about using potentially a passive agent, for instance, uh, that might just promote coagulation. But I usually tend to prefer active agents that are going to really stimulate clot formation, pretty much in most scenarios. So if I have that um, mild ooze, for instance, um, I'm usually going to go towards a sealant versus if I have a more significant bleed, that's a pinpoint bleed, that's okay, I need to stop that right there. I'm going to be using something that I know is going to have a little bit more of a dramatic effect. Can you share just just for definition, and, and there might be some relatively... Um, newer students on the scene learning more about the coagulation cascade and the role of active and passive hemostatic agents. Can you share with the audience the difference between those and how they fit into the clotting cascade? Yeah. So, you know, I always kind of try to keep it simple because we all learn the coagulation cascade in medical school, but none of us really want to repeat it. always when I'm talking, you know, to a big group, kind of show that nice slide. That's that slide that you always say, I'm sorry, this slide is so busy. Um, and then you move on to the next slide. Uh, so the way that I kind of, you know, it's easy to, to kind of wrap up passive versus active agents and 
passive hemostatic agents are just agents that they're almost like desiccants, right? They're, they're trying to kind of dry up the area to help essentially, I hate to use the term in the definition, but a passive clot formation, right? So an example of that would be like potato starch product that some surgeons are pretty familiar with called Arista. So you put it down, it basically dehydrates that area and helps promote clot passively. These agents don't contain active portions of the coagulation cascade that actually actively promote a clot to form. So just looking at that and kind of thinking of that theoretically, those, those passive agents aren't going to be quite as pungent, so to speak, as an active agent. So your active agents contain the key portions of your coagulation cascade, and they are going to literally actively promote clot formation and mimic that last portion of the coagulation cascade where you form that, that clot. We're kind of bringing the conversation back to our anticoagulated patient that we talked about earlier. It's okay. Like they can be anticoagulated. They don't need to generate their own factors and they will actually still get the benefit of that medication and formulate that clot. I, I think that's really telling in terms of differentiating. So a lot of these agents sound alike, they look alike, they all have similar roles, but to understand how they're impacted, particularly with your patient's profile, is, and, and as you noted earlier, that so many patients are coming to surgery already on medications that are either anticoagulants or compromising their ability to clot. So it sounds to, it sounds to me like what you're saying is active agents tend to work more effectively in a variety of different scenarios for the types of bleeding that you experience. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of, of what you're describing? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I think that if I'm going to be reaching for something, I'm reaching for it because I'm seeing some uh, enough bleeding that I want to have some form of medical therapy that's going to have a measurable benefit. And I think when you're looking at our population becoming unfortunately more sick, being more anticoagulated, more obese, et cetera, these patients just have higher risks overall. Leaning more towards active agents is the way to go. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about adhesion prevention and meticulous hemostasis. How do those two how do those two elements play off each other? So we definitely have plenty of surgical data that points to the role of meticulous dissection and hemostasis in prevention of future uh, adhesions. So as a surgeon, one of your main roles is to, to make it as if you were never there. I always tell patients we're a foreign invader <laughs> when, you're, when we are in your abdomen. And when we are there, uh, we try to be as meticulous as possible and pretend as if we were never there because we do see that the more blood losses and blood left in the cavity, that is just a stimulus for inflammation and inflammation causes adhesions hundred percent. 
So we even have certain surgeries that we know are more notorious for adhesion formation. For instance, the myomectomy, when patients have fibroids removed from the uterus, it's, it's a difficult situation to control blood losses, which is why in that surgery, I generally rely on sealants, et cetera, to, to help prevent blood loss, because you do end up seeing a lot of adhesions in these young women later on due to that. So certainly meticulous hemostasis is so important for that as well. Well, I want to leave you with the final word here and and have you share your pearls of wisdom that other surgeon colleagues would like to hear. I think that I just really feel passionate that with our growing population of patients who just have very significant comorbidities, we need to be a little bit more aware that those patients may experience higher complication rates if we're not cognizant of the fact that they are at higher risk for bleeding. And it's fantastic that most of us are now moving towards more minimally invasive procedures that have less blood losses overall, but those procedures still can have complications, especially in the anticoagulated patient. So I think that we need to really be aware of that and be, be forward about the fact that we need to be very proactive about making sure these patients are treated appropriately so they don't suffer from a intraoperative or postoperative bleeding complication. Well, Dr. Stein, we certainly appreciate your the time you shared with us today and the information that you shared. And if you'd like more information on Baxter's Advanced Surgery products, please visit us at www.advancedsurgery.baxter.com or contact your local representative. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for joining us. Mm-hmm.